Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Part 3 Chapter 8 Tourist Run Upstairs from the bookshop, there was a large room I would rent out occasionally. It provided some extra cash, especially in the slow months when expats were out of town or it was the low tourist season. In between, there was a steady stream of friends visiting who were pleased to make use of the facilities. I would arrange for Mr. Twan or one of the local motorcycle boys to take newcomers on a tourist run. This might include the dead dog market and a couple of nearby temples or the notorious former prison Maison Centrale, better known to some as the Hanoi Hilton. The dead dog market was not its official name, but it supplied much of the roasted dogs for street-side beer hoy stalls. Not for the faint of heart, especially if you had a beloved pooch at home. Long wooden tables plied high with glistening dog carcasses. Their acrid smell fell over you like a moist, skanky blanket. Long before man's best friend, dogs were man's best dinner, and the practice continues in Vietnam. Men generally ate strips of dog meat with their evening beer at the pavement beer hoy stall. Thankfully for me, dog is a hot meat, and women shouldn't eat it. Purportedly to increase virility, it seemed there were few foods that weren't supposed to put lead in your pencil. I'd imagine a night out back in Europe or the US, where eating dog might prove to be a passion killer on the home front. Most wives and girlfriends likely balk when their fella embraces them with only bourbon on their breath. I recall mistakenly eating dog once, a long time ago, later told by a hesitant waiter that the meat was fox, because that would make it okay. An elderly neighbour once showed me a small bird he gently held in his palm. My assumption was that it had fallen from a tree and he had rescued it. When asked what he would do with it now, he sweetly responded, Lunch. He'd purchased it from one of the street vendors and was looking forward to the teaspoon or so of meat and mystical properties it might provide. The snake village across the river was a popular tourist haunt, although primal fear and common sense kept me away. Tourists would be treated to a performance of thrashing cobras and others before the animals are carved alive, the pulsating heart offered in a china dish to be slurped like a Hanoi oyster. More than one foreigner has fallen ill from accidentally poisoning in an attempt at experiencing the local colour. Hanoi is also known for its artisanal rice wines, but unfortunately for me, the home brew nearly always tasted like compost strained through a sweaty sock. Rough rice alcohol in enormous glass bottles is generally flavoured with different plants, flowers and animals. Geckos are a favourite, as well as snake, bat, bird and even bumblebee. A favourite addition were the gonads of anything, but especially goat. Testicles bobbing in a murky alcoholic soup, the liquid drained into shot glasses and served in anticipation of either a night of seduction 
or gastroenteritis. My tourist agenda always included a visit to the new shopping mall at Huan Kiem Lake, since demolished and reconstructed again, to admire a whole feathered black crow preserved in rice wine, its beady eyes gazing motionless through the glass. The bottle had been curiously moulded to the crow's exact shape, a cork plugged at the end of its beak. An establishment not far from the bookshop featured a baby bear in a giant glass jar of rice alcohol, slowly fermenting or putrefying in their window. Supposedly, it met an even sorrier end after it somehow exploded and sprayed rotten bear bits onto repulsed patrons. The different potions have assumed therapeutic qualities. Virility is always high on the list. Someone suggested that the availability of Viagra should have a big impact on saving endangered wildlife, especially baby bears. But I'd guess old habits die hard. I visited a local acupuncturist whose techniques similarly merged new and old, where the chi life force of his patients was given a helping hand via a large shot of amoxicillin in their buttocks. It was quite common to see Vietnamese with small white squares stuck to the sides of their heads, prescribed or self-administered for an expansive list of ailments. Mostly, the squares were infused with menthol or tiger balm, a panacea containing aspirin to cure all ills. Visits to foreign medical services were available, but could often be prohibitively expensive. I had hurt my neck and done the rounds of conventional medicos, spent a fortune on foreign and local doctors, and in desperation I found myself at a Vietnamese clinic offering traditional therapies. My neck was causing me extreme pain, but none of the drugs or physical therapy had so far worked. I was ushered to a back room where I was introduced to the doctor. She was wearing the usual cotton Vietnamese doctor cap, white coat and dangling stethoscope. She looked very professional, except for her oversized red T-shirt announcing, Kiss my ass. In Vietnamese, I asked if she could read or speak English. Unsurprisingly, no, she beamed. We continued with the consultation. She examined the problem and produced a large wooden box full of metal instruments. Enthusiastically, various spiked pizza cutters were brutally run up and down my neck. It was complete agony. She whacked my face with a toffee hammer. Burning moxa swirled round my head. I was delirious, tearful and in excruciating pain. Her therapy complete, the doctor scheduled another appointment and offered a handful of anti-inflammatories. Kiss my ass indeed. The most famous area of Hanoi is the Old Quarter, originally home to hundreds of artisans, providing services to the Tonkin dynasties. These days, small family-run businesses are jammed into a few congested streets where everything and anything is made or sold in prodigious amounts. Silk Street, Paper Street, Toy Street, Lacquer Street, Computer Street, Tin Street... Workers begin at dawn in a cacophony of bashing, grinding, whacking and belting. Most tourists wander through endlessly distracted by the blur of activity, while others are peddled around in an all-day conga line, seated in fancy cyclos from the big hotels. Shops and residences merge together. Every available space is put to use. Men on tiny plastic stools blend into the passing parade, 
nursing green tea in small cups while playing cards or drafts. Women blast charcoal grills with electric fans to cook skewers of chicken or pork. Dingy alleyways between shop fronts double as cafes or even kitchens preparing food for pavement stalls. An early morning walk in my neighbourhood will find throngs of people out and about on their exercise regime. Tai Chi is popular around Huan Kim Lake, as groups of older Hanoians effortlessly glide through the precise movements. I spent a long time learning Kung Fu from the local Kung Fu master, whose studio was located near the bookshop. His patience was to be commended, as it was very apparent my aptitude for the martial arts was limited, to say the least. The French Quarter was named for the concessions of marshy land next to the river offered to the colonial administration in the 19th century. Although soon drained by the French, it created a collection of small lakes, and as already described, flash floods are still common during the monsoon season, when the drainage system quickly becomes overwhelmed. In Hanoi, similar or often exactly the same shops congregate together. Expats give directions in terms of Sunglasses Street, Paper Street or Mobile Phone Street. The local cop shop was located in Hare Street near the bookshop and was surrounded by at least 20 women's hairdressers. Tiny salons that offered a very cheap but limited array of services. Most were not much bigger than a phone box. A quick haircut amounted to a girl pouring a full cup of shampoo onto dry hair as the foreigner watches unbelieving in the mirror their hair massaged and spiked sky-high into a knotted stupor. The hapless foreigner is paraded as Marge Simpson to a communal basin further along the street, where the mountain of soap is rinsed off and the long process of de-knotting and cutting begins. By now, the foreigner has slim hope that they won't end up looking like they've been dragged backwards through a hedge. But ladies, this is almost always how a one-dollar haircut turns out. Vietnamese girls, on the other hand, look fabulous throughout this whole procedure. They just seem to be able to shake their heads and their glossy black tresses unfold perfectly. Not so for uncooperative foreigner hair. Nearby was also home to the local constabulary, a ragtag bunch who seemed to spend their time pursuing licence-dodging ladies who sold their wares from baskets yoked across their shoulders. Every morning, like clockwork, a swarm of basket ladies amscrayed toot-sweet past the bookshop with a bunch of weaseling cops in ill-fitting, saggy green uniforms hot on their tails. Slower ladies, with heavier baskets, would get scooped up and put in the back of a sputtering diesel truck, along with their confiscated wares, to be processed and fined at the cop shop. It appeared that the whole performance was fairly well orchestrated, although I think to avoid 500 dong daily licence, three cents, the basket ladies harboured a false economy. Perhaps they enjoyed the chase. I would drop off a few beers or cartons of cigarettes to the police for Tet, but I'm confident the cops would have instantly scarpered in the event of an actual emergency. The cadaverous boss of the cop shop possessed a slightly better-fitting saggy green uniform, along with a very impressive hat. After supervising the morning cattle call, he would shuffle, lurch-like, his eyes focused on his feet, past the bookshop to the nearby street stall for an industrial-strength coffee and a couple of cigarettes. 
His return trip once coincided outside the bookshop with my arrival on the back of a motorcycle taxi. He approached us from behind, his eyes, as usual, fixated on his feet. I swung my leg over the motorcycle to dismount and accidentally kicked him hard, roundhouse style, in the stomach. Maybe my kung fu lessons were paying off. He doubled over and hit the pavement, hissing expletives. My driver was mortified. The cop regained composure after a few seconds, in a livid sort of a way. His eyes, however, were now definitely off his feet and fixated on me as he staggered to safety around the corner, no doubt to add a further indiscretion to my file. In subsequent days, there seemed to be no repercussions. I prefer to think that once around the corner, he walked straight into a power pole and knocked himself out. A couple of times a week, I took to tutoring a young Japanese Viet kid, Ichiru, who lived above his mother's fancier salon in Hare Street. As both parents were extremely busy with their own businesses, Ichiru had a retinue of maids who looked after him and who chaperoned him to his extensive after-school programme. His mother was a friend and she asked if I would help him improve his English. Ichiru would show up at the bookshop after hours already exhausted from his music class, his karate class, his drawing class, his Japanese class. It was endless. His seven-year-old life was jammed solid. We would play games and have long conversations about his widespread activities. His younger sister, Fujiko, soon joined us in these lessons that were far more fun and unstructured than they were used to. Both children provided a valuable in-house critique of the kids' books, which were better and what wasn't, greatly helping me in planning what sort of children's books to try and include in the next order. A geographic anomaly occurred outside the bookshop where Blind Street ran into Glasses Street, although blind in this case referred to window coverings. I often walked visitors staying at the bookshop around the corner for a free eye test and for them to inevitably purchase a range of custom eyewear at absurdly low prices. I had an arrangement with a local optician who was very obliging in examining patients and helping them select from a large choice of frames. A foreign customer sent from the bookshop once or twice a week was very much appreciated. Customers asked for recommendations for restaurants, galleries, shoes, doctors, dentists and haircutters. Sometimes we'd send them for a dollar haircut around the corner, then later send them for a five dollar haircut with a churu's mother to get over the trauma of the first. There were questions about everything and anything on earth other than books, Highly favoured was juicy advice guaranteed not in Lonely Planet, particularly for young travellers, who, by the way, should never be considered as tourists on extended holidays. And where did you get your traveller's visa? Racks of business cards offered all sorts of services to assist the Vietnamese staff in trying to interpret or understand why a foreigner would go to a bookshop not to buy a book but rather to be directed to a gynaecologist or where to buy a birdcage. Twice they were asked for the closest bridal shop because two separate couples became engaged somewhere between non-fiction and the coffee machine, the Bermuda Triangle of Romance. So as not to disappoint, sometimes the bookshop staff, not having a clue on what or why they had been asked, would invent elaborate and very precise directions to non-existent places far from the bookshop, 
in the hope the customer would never figure their way back. I kept cards for a range of hotels to recommend to customers, although in terms of the smaller, cheaper venues, it was difficult to keep up to date as so many were opening, closing or expanding. Requests for new living quarters came because of the planned accommodation being unable to deliver the promised services. Rooms with no windows. Rooms seemingly with windows that, when expansive curtains were opened, revealed a solid wall or a sealed window the size of a shoebox. Problems with noise, problems with heating or cooling, the slaughtering of chickens or pigs on the pavement disturbing your zen tranquillity, and always some guy bashing a piece of tin outside at daybreak for no particular reason. All the stuff that allegedly broadens your mind, but in reality drives you crazy, especially on holiday. I was always happy to provide information for the foreign women customers living in Hanoi, particularly where to buy clothes or shoes. In our home countries, we may have been petite or regular-sized, but in Vietnam, our presence was unvaryingly gargantuan. I ventured into a nearby lingerie shop, confident from my retail spies, that foreigner sizes were in the offing. The lingerie shop, like a lot of Hanoi premises, was slightly bigger than a closet. I inquired slowly in bad Vietnamese, gesturing at my hips, if she had any underpants my size. The young sales girl, terrified at my sudden appearance, grabbed a pair of tiny knickers from the rack. Stretched tight between two thumbs, she mouthed slowly in thoughtful English, These are the biggest pants in Vietnam. Crushed, I got the message and to her relief, slunk away. At that time, Vietnam made about a billion shoes for export, but I could find none for me. Instead, I had the same pair of Italian sandals copied over and over as I wore them out. Familiar to all expats was the Russian shop. Not its name, but it's what everyone called it. A sanctuary to the plus-sized, it sold stock destined for Mother Russia from garment factories in Da Nang, southern Vietnam. Duck-down puffer jackets and thick polo-neck sweaters lined the walls, churned out from a place where the thermometer rarely sank below 35 degrees centigrade. An abundance of day spas emerged, with manicures and massages for only a few dollars. I went with some women friends to test out a supposed upmarket establishment. I received a violent massage from a female therapist. Her technique included an attempt to wrestle my breasts, My friends confirmed her colleagues tried the same tactic, apart from one who had shamefully missed out on being groped. Sadly, her chest must have not been worth the effort. I discovered the joy of shaved feet. Unattended, in a Hanoi climate, I had the feet of an orangutan. Every couple of weeks, I would visit my local pedicurist, where cracked dead skin would be expertly sliced from my heels with a corn blade. Vietnam is famous, of course, for its tailors. Close to the bookshop was the fabric market. It was a soft paradise of textiles and silks. Tons of fabrics of every type, sort and quality could be found. I went through phases of furnishings made from fake fur, crepe, Chinese rayon and velour. Hundreds of stallholders sold a mesmerising array of cottons, synthetics, silks and others. The air throughout the market was a haze of microfibres, 
gasping and heaving for a stray cigarette. As the tailors near the fabric market were located away from the tourist areas, they were not used to foreigner sizing, but at least for the price you could afford some garments not to turn out exactly as imagined. These tailors would enact a pantomime, measuring all physical aspects with great seriousness. But when it came to actually cutting and sewing the fabric, they, or their offsiders, blithely ignored the numbers, believing that no normal human could possess such ridiculous measurements. Arms that long, breasts, hips, legs. My bespoke wardrobe included a weird collection of shirts with three-quarter sleeves, not because I'd asked, but because the tailor refused to accept that my knuckles evidently scraped the ground. A friend and I hosted a joint 40th birthday party and decided on a dragon theme. A restaurant bar facing Huan Kiem Lake had been reserved, a dragon fruit cocktail invented, food and other drinks decided. But where to get a dragon? I was discussing this dilemma on the bookshop steps when a woman thumped up on her Minsk motorcycle, dismounted, and made her way to post an ad on the message board. Curling down her back was a gigantic dragon tattoo. Instantly invited to the party, it transpired she was Dutch, passing through for a few weeks, and was a tattoo artist and belly dancer. This was the gist of the ad she had placed on the board. I'd found the dragon. She graciously offered to do her belly dance routine if I bought her a couple of costumes. I was off to the tailor. We'd bought some gaudy material from the fabric market, and I tried in vain to adequately describe the costume, pantaloons and brassiere to my confused tailor. Certainly this outfit was not part of her normal repertoire or my language skills. Frustrated with my frustrating Vietnamese, the dancer grabbed the order book and quickly produced an exact sketch of her requirements. Ah, Aladdin, cooed the tailor. I'd forgotten how Disney cartoons speak a universal language. The results looked fantastic, a perfect fit, leaving me to wonder, how is it a sequined belly dancing costume is a no-brainer, while a regular shirt for me required three return visits? Was I really the distorted giant blob with baboon arms my tailor pictured. My preoccupation with contortionists continued, and I tried to hire the same woman for the party as previously, but as the star performer had a prior engagement, I was offered trainees to provide the entertainment. I had misgivings in hiring underage contortionists for an overage venue, so I asked for a sneak preview of their act. Three young girls arrived at the bookshop after closing time. A bunch of curious orphans pressed their faces against the window, wondering what was going on with the crazy Tay this time. Thankfully, the girls' routine was very G-rated and featured a skilful display of contorting, perfectly suited for a bunch of boozy revellers. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.